You are listening to Your Pod and Your Staff, the podcast of College Life Christian Fellowship at UC Davis. I am Peter Nittler, the college pastor of First Baptist Church in Davis, California, and our mission is to shape college-age people from all spiritual starting points into complete and equipped agents of King Jesus. And on this podcast, we want to have conversations that will accompany our Tuesday night Zoom gatherings, and we hope that they form you, encourage you, maybe even make you laugh, and that they would be a source of King Jesus guiding you through this time. And I've told this little parable before, and I'll probably do it again, so I might as well do it now. But in his commencement address to Kenyon College, David Foster Wallace says this. He says that there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, water? What is water? Wallace then says that the point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. They are so used to being in the water, they don't even notice it anymore. And I retell this little story because I think the theme that Stanford and I are discussing today is one that reminds us that we too are swimming in waters that we don't even recognize anymore. And simply put, the theme is imitation. Paul over and over and over again calls on people to imitate other people. And that's not a controversial topic like the ones we've discussed the last few weeks, but it still rubs us the wrong way because the waters that we swim in don't care much for imitation. We don't make much room for imitation. We want to stand out, not be like someone else. And so we talk about why we resist this idea and why it's such a foundational New Testament theme and even a little bit about how to do it. Plus, it's just great to have Stanford back. So this is going to be a great episode. But I can't help but notice the personal timing of an episode praising imitation because for the past decade, I have had the unique and distinct pleasure of imitating a man named Dan Seitz. And this episode actually drops on the last day of his FBC tenure. So the very wise and very smart people at Hillside Covenant Church in Walnut Creek have made the excellent decision to make Dan Seitz their senior pastor. But among other things, that means I will no longer be working a few doors down from one of the people who has shaped me the most. And so, Dan, I've said this to you already, but I want everyone else to know that my favorite parts about me, the parts about me that people affirm the most, are the parts of me that I've gotten from you. And I'll always be grateful for that. And I'll always and forever think it's an honor when someone says, I remind them of you. So bless you as you go, brother. And thank you for letting me imitate you. You have no idea the impact on my life. College Life loves you, Dan, and I love you too. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. This is uh, your pod and your staff, and we're back with Stanford Gibson. And Stanford, I saw something on the internet last night that I'd like to share Uh-oh. with you, and I because <laughs> I have a few thoughts. Okay, this was a post by one Amanda Gibson, who is oh, your I know her. wife. <laughs> you do know her. She She's says, spicy. Yeah, she says this. He says this. this is a three liner. Says somehow Stanford Gibson found one thousand mud flow experts to attend his Zoom call this afternoon. Question mark. I didn't know there were so many, and they all want to hear his thoughts on this topic. So there's a few angles to take this, and um, (laughs) (laughs) what I wanted to talk about is if there's a thousand people coming to something, I want to know, first, why wasn't I invited? (laughs) <laughs> and I often invite you onto my podcast. You're on here right now. And 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 I didn't there's a thousand people you'd rather 
<laughs> you'd rather have there than me. I found that to be a little bit surprising and a little bit hurtful. Yeah, you know, Peter, I've never like picked your brain about your thoughts on non-Newtonian physics. Um, we, I probably should have like asked if you were interested. And uh, yeah, it's funny. She said, incidentally, it wasn't a thousand Mudflow experts because they were they were there to listen to me talk. They were there to learn. They, I would call them enthusiasts. A thousand Mudflow enthusiasts. These were just aficionados. Um, they subscribed yeah, to right. Mudflow Monthly. <laughs> right. They, yeah. I don't think they all do. No. Um, but the uh, you know it was uh, the Australian Water School has these cl- online classes, and uh, they had twelve hundred people sign up, and uh, there were about. 500 people that came in real time, but it's global. So like half the people were in bed and are going to watch it on YouTube tomorrow. Um, So it is on YouTube. um, If you want to look for Australian water school, um, HEC RAS, mud and debris, or just don't. That's like watching the Instagram stories of the party you weren't invited to. I don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But something funny happened though last night. I had a blooper that has me a little nervous going into doing media this morning. So let me frame this for you. The kind of Michael Jordan, to use the term of art I'll come back to, of mud and debris flow is an, is a guy named Richard Iverson. He's um he's just like a, like a really senior, respected, like the GOAT. He's the, he's goat, the goat of mud and debris flow. Um, yeah. And so I got to a point in my talk where, you know, in I've u- used numerical model to simulate some experiments he's done. And I'm just kind of gushing about how great this work is. And I'm talking about how Dr. Iverson is just the best and the gold standard of you know determining if your model is saying good is being able to replicate his experiments, uh-huh. except that when I stop calling him Dr. Iverson and go to use his first name, you know, I'm speaking. So like not all of my RAM is going <laughs> to my memory. Right. And so I call him Alan Iverson. <laughs> 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 is not the same person, also famous, also like excellent in his field, maybe a few more tattoos. Um, And so uh, I didn't even realize it till I went back and watched the YouTube. And (laughs) so that's so if you do go, um, if you are interested in non-Newtonian mechanics and do go to uh, watch that video, watch for that blooper, because that's a good one. (laughs) You know what would have solved that for you? More practice. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Got to tell you, I'm pretty proud of that joke right there. That was pretty good. Yeah, that's hilarious. You ended up calling him, his name's Richard Iverson. You call him Alan Iverson. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Well, uh, proud of you for having such a a poll in the Mudflow community. I'm glad to say that I know you. So we we are not talking about Mudflow or anything of the sort. We're in our three-quarter sort of love affair with the epistles, which has been terrific. And I feel like they're, they radically changed for me. But this quarter we're doing themes and really what we've been doing is asking sort of big questions about the epistles, particularly when it feels like our cultures, the culture from the epistles and the culture of our time feel different. And because of that, then we look back and it feels strange. And so we talked mm-hmm. about some gender issues. We talked about what the scriptures have to say about race and racism. It turns out not a lot about race or racism, but, mm-hmm. you know, come at the issues from a, from a different way that the epistles are talking about. So anyway, in a lot of those things, it feels like almost like we feel like we've progressed past the world of the epistles and sort of the early church. And so it sounds sort of regressive when we look back. And, you know, it's a, I don't blame us for thinking that, you know, and I think in some ways our 
you know, we have progressed. Our culture has progressed. But then we can get pretty tempted to think our culture is the best culture that has ever been a culture. And we have the mm-hmm. the the best ideas and we are the most advanced. And everything that's happening now is probably a little bit better than what was happening then, which is sort of arrogant, I should say. Mm-hmm. And I don't think true. And so I think there's another way to look back in the past and say, oh, our culture is different now. Just the norms are different now. I wonder if something was like better back then, you know? Right. There seems to be this sense that because we have penicillin and, and iPhones, everything <laughs> is better now, right? Like that, yeah. that there's only one direction in which human beings go. Because science is incrementally progressive and because science is almost, not really, but almost a discipline of monotonic progress, mm-hmm. that therefore like our moral norms are therefore must always progress and now is better than then. But I don't think that's the way that humans work. I think that there are cycles. I think that there are there are fluctuations. And I think sometimes when we read the scriptures and we find something that offends us, there's like two possibilities. Mm-hmm. One possibility is that we don't really understand that context. And so we're kind of reading it with a modern lens and, you know, reading our values into it when there were other values that were preeminent and that those authors were negotiating, which is some of the things that we were, that you were getting into with gender issues and race. But the other possibility is that they were just right and we were wrong, right? right? Is that our culture is broken in a way that maybe their culture was too, but that the scriptures are not. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe we just need to be like, uh, I need to check myself here a little bit and say, I'm not sure that this cultural script that I'm working on is correct. Right, right. And so today we are going to talk about something that feels different in their culture and our culture. And I guess the jury can be out as to whether or not it's one of those things where, yeah, we've progressed and like we actually are doing it the right way and sort of the way we understand it on the baseline level. Or, you know, maybe there's parts of our culture that aren't that helpful. And actually to trust and hear on face value, what the scriptures are saying in this case might actually be closer to how humans flourish and closer to just how human beings operate. So without further ado, the topic du jour is a simple, it's one word, imitation. Imitation. Um, imitation. And so- See what I did there? Uh, <laughs> I do. I do see what you did there. Uh, that's pretty good. Pretty good. We're very pretty on fire right now with our, with our humor. We're yeah. funny for this early in the morning. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there is, we were going to get to a little bit of the text, but, you know, there's just, Paul is adamant and is not embarrassed about calling people to imitate himself and imitate other people. And I think we're going to get to a little bit of why that might rub us the wrong way. But I don't think that we see that as as having a high value all the time, Im- no. imitating someone. You know, maybe we we have a originality complex that we deal with. But before we get to how we interact with these things, it'd be great to just look at what we mean by Paul saying that he is calling people to imitation. So can you – we usually – we try to split up these podcasts into the exegesis section where we talk about the texts and the why-a-jesus section where we talk about why it matters, what it means, and, and all the rest. So can you lead us into the exegesis Yeah, so this has interested me for a while because honestly, early on, it offended me. I thought, you know, when we'll 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 get more into that feeling, but I just it just didn't sit right with me. Mm -hmm. So I take a look at how the scriptures use just the word imitate, and you know, when it shows up in the Old Testament, it's always pejorative. It's always a negative connotation. 
where it says, you know, do not imitate the cultures around you. Do not become like them, right? Which is one of the major themes, particularly of, well, just the the whole thing, the prophets, the Pentateuch, all of that. Mm -hmm. You remain distinct as a culture. Do not become like the other peoples around you. Okay, so that that's a pejorative. And that's kind of how we're accustomed to thinking about imitation is that it's generally a pejorative. If you tell someone, hey, they imitated me or you're imitating someone, it's it's never a compliment, right? Right. But then it it completely shifts in the New Testament, particularly with Paul. And Paul uses the word imitation, I don't know, like half a dozen times, a little more. And it's always positive. You know, sometimes he says things like, uh, imitate God. Okay, well, that's, of course, yes. Good. That makes okay, sense. Fine, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but then, like, the most famous one that you'll hear from time to time is he'll say, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay, that seems a little self-centered, mm-hmm. but I get it, right? Like, it's there's a transitive property there, like, if you, to use a right. mathematical right. term, right? Like, yeah. if, if, uh, if A equals B and uh, B equals C, then A equals C, right? So you can right. kind of indirectly take on the, you know, there's a, a great book by Thomas Kempis, a classic medieval text. It used to be my backpacking devotional. I just kept it in my backpack. And whenever I went backpacking, it's called The Imitation of Christ. And so that's huh. kind of an idea is that we are trying to be like Christ. And sometimes we can do that by seeing Christ through other people. But then sometimes uh-huh. he just kind of drops the whole like Christ thing. And in fact, most of the times, you know, he'll just say, hey, uh, imitate me. And that's where things start to get weird. Like in 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. <laughs> Which is just a little stark. Right? Like, that like, is this, stark. Is the one, this is one of the reasons why I just feel like you know, Paul maybe wouldn't be great at parties. It's funny in Philippians 3, when he says, brothers, join in imitating me. It sort of sounds like he's saying, there's a lot of people imitating me. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Join this, them. This is the thing. Join the people who are imitating me. Oh, right. Join so the there, club. There's just there's just a half dozen of those. It's just yeah. it's kind of it's part of his shtick. It's part of his stump speech. But particularly in First Second Thessalonians, it shows up three mm-hmm. times in there. It's like part of his kind of program for them. Their their growth program. Mm-hmm. And so you know that that kind of leaves us with the question: Is that okay? Right. Right. Like is that is that like a a cult of personality? It, you know, mm-hmm. I, it strikes me as one of the reasons why, you know, you and I have said a couple of times that Paul is obviously the agent of God to write the Holy Scriptures and has been a huge blessing in our life. But the more we kind of like get to know his personality through his letters, the mm-hmm. less we think maybe we'd be friends. Yeah. You know, like he, he seems like maybe he's a little bit prickly. Yeah. Is this kind of countercultural because it was just it's just kind of weird or is it countercultural because our culture doesn't understand its value? Yeah. What you described was basically the idea that the imitation idea shows up over and over and over again. And he's not saying like, hey, you go figure out how you be a Christian on your own. (laughs) You know, he's saying imitate me or imitate Timothy or, you know, imitate God or whatever it might be, you know. And it isn't, I I sort of have normally thought about this in terms of the originality issue, you know, like uniqueness. But it is interesting. You mentioned like this cult of personality thing, this whole power corrupts absolutely idea. And it's, if you have people imitating you, you have power over them. And I guess, you know, even with like celebrity pastors now, you know, I feel like there's a sense of the church gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you start to feel like, well, you got a lot of people's sort of faith in your hands. They're going to, they're going to be imitating you. Or I don't know. It's like, I don't, I start to feel a little nervous, you know, man, the, the impact that you could have 
on all these people feels really big and maybe too big for a person. So that's interesting. I don't know. I'm not really prepared with much content on that. I mean, you, you know. But. Yeah, and, but and I think the other the reason that this offended me, kind of as a young person, is most people don't know that I wasn't always interested in non-Newtonian mechanics and physics and engineering. Um, that uh, I actually applied to undergrad mm-hmm. as an art major. That's the best. <laughs> and so anyone who has that kind of background, anyone who has fancied themselves an artist at some point, likes to think that like originality is the highest goal and that imitation mm-hmm. or anything that is derivative that someone else thought of, it's lesser. And you know, I think that that it's just uh-huh. kind of, it's really worked its way into our culture is that you need to be your own person, you need to find your own way, you need to be an original or you're somehow less if you're just kind of taking your cues from yeah. someone else and kind of trying to be like someone else. And I guess my response yeah. to that is that's really psychologically naive. It's really naive mm-hmm. about how we develop as people, how how humans take on facets and factors. You know, at some point I realized that, you know, everyone that I thought was original, they were just imitating someone I didn't know. Right. This is how humans develop. Yeah. This is also why classroom learning is not particularly useful. Um, You know, you're going to graduate from college and know a lot of calculus, but you'll still be unhirable because you haven't had the chance to apprentice in your field. And that that's the whole, you know, the whole catch 22 of, well, you need experience to get experience. And so there's this sense in which humans learn by imitation. We learn by watching. And so I think that the turn I've made on these passages is that Paul is just kind of spiritually and psychologically sophisticated about how people grow. Yeah. I'm noticing how my particular station in life is impacting how I'm experiencing what you're saying. Because there's the two things that came to my mind were naming practices now. And I don't remember where I read this or heard this. And maybe this is just something everybody knows, but I'm just going to say it anyway. But like, you know, if you look at like the top 10 Mm. baby names right now, there's way fewer people named those top 10 names than there were the top 10 baby names of 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And when our parents or grandparents were naming their kids, it was more about naming your child something so that they would fit in. That's right. That's right. Right. So you name them Michael, you name them Robert. You name so it's like so yeah you're gonna fit maybe in maybe literally imitating generations right like like right yeah. yeah a lot of juniors and stuff yeah and now people tend to name their child something That's so that right. their child will stand out so like like we went through a lot of trouble because it's we loved the name Mason and had we we had a lot of like <laughs> significance built on the name but it was like top seven it was the right. like seventh most popular name we're like we can't do that you can't be like everyone else you know right Al- Alethea might have been Sophia if Sophia hadn't been a top seven name. Right. Because we wanted to be, right. yeah. we wanted her to stand up. That's exactly right. Yeah. That impulse of like standing out, being unique, being different, not being like everybody else seems like such a high value. The other thing I want to say so, the like month before Mason was born, I was reading, it was actually really sweet. There was one of Katie's best friends and obviously a good friend of mine too, mm-hmm. Courtney Jimenez, gave oh, us a cool. few books. She's into like cognitive psychology, you know, brain development kind of stuff yeah. and um, getting her PhD. And so she wanted, she gave us some like, some sort of child psychology books. And one of them was the Alison Gopnik book, The Gardener and the Carpenter or The Carpenter and the Gardener. Yeah, and, which we both love. Yeah, which I love, yeah. you know. And and yeah, the yeah. basic 
premise is that we tend to think like raising children is you're like a carpenter. You know, you're you're just yeah. crafting the right pieces, putting the right pieces together, and you do that by instruction. You know, you do that by right. teaching them the right things. And she's like, no, it's much more like a gardener. You set up an environment and then you let them explore and grow. And and they do that by watching you. They yeah. learn these things by watching you do the stuff as opposed to direct instruction. The word you're looking for is imitation. Yes. Yes. And so, I mean, you and I both think about this from the pr- from the perspective of parents because that's the big project that you and I are in right now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, most of our listeners, the big project they're in is early vocation. Mm-hmm. So, let me let me use a metaphor from from that. Is so we've already talked a little we've talked more th- than usual about my work. I have a 1-minute rule about my work. I tend to not talk about my work for more than 1 minute because I most normal people wouldn't be interested in it, but I'm going to break that right now. Yeah. Sediment transport modeling, which is what I the one thing in the the world I'm considered an expert in is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And I have an excellent class I teach on it. I've been working, I think a lot about pe- pedagogy. I like, I really have thought a lot about how this 32 hour class would form a sediment transport modeler. And the truth is, is that it doesn't. You cannot teach someone to do this. Mm. So what I've started doing is I've just said, hey, if you've got a project build into the budget to come out to California and just sit with me mm-hmm. and we'll do it together. Yeah. And because, you know, hard things can't be taught. They have to be apprenticed. Yeah. And apprenticeship is something that was common in Paul's culture that's not as common in ours. You know, you're supposed to go to school, learn on your own, and then figure it out. That's not how humans work. Humans apprentice. And so the new generation of young sediment transport modelers in my organization are not the people who learned it in school or not the people who went to a class. They're the people who you know, showed up at my office and apprenticed and learned to imitate and then are now teaching others. Yeah. So we talked about parenting, maybe talk about vocation, even just in the spiritual life. The person who was in Maddie's job a couple people ago was Leah Kaufman and now Leah Shelby. And I'm not going to get into their whole story, but they had a super tragic, like their four and a half month old, like tragically passed away. He was like a a miracle baby. His name was Lucas, Mm -hmm. named him that bringer of light. And the reason I bring it up is they just had his like celebration of life yesterday. So as we're recording this, it was yesterday. And, you know, I've learned a lot about suffering and I've learned a lot about hope and suffering. But what they did at that celebration of life was essentially like an apprenticeship. It's like, watch us go through this. This is how you yes. do it, you know? And the testimony of God's moving, the testimony of God's goodness, when to me it felt so irresponsible to talk about God's goodness in such a tragic thing. And, and But they're the people going through it and they're doing it. And it was like a rebuke to me of how ill-equipped mm. I would have been to handle that. And now I feel probably a little bit better equipped to handle something Mm -hmm. maybe like that just by watching them and by hearing from them. And so maybe it's like, well, you don't actually know until you're ready. But it's like it's different than reading something in a book about suffering. You know, you're like watching someone and and seeing them go through it. So it is interesting. And the more we talk about it, it feels so ingrained. And so I I wonder, you know, you had mentioned a little bit of like – if someone says something's an imitation, it's derivative. Can we just like scratch at that a little bit more of like, what is the cultural narrative right now that we sense or just that we feel it could be in us, could just be in, in what we hear. But it just feels to me at the very least, I guess I'll just add to the pot that being unique is the highest goal. Yeah, I think so. That no matter what you want to be, and lots of language like be yourself, you do you, you know, mm-hmm. people gonna people. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's something you hear. <laughs> Did you make that one up? No, no, no. I heard that. I did hear that recently. <laughs> All right. 
You're more culturally proximal. Yeah, I am. <laughs> and and it just feels like what you should be doing is sort of figuring out your own path, your own way. That's right. Not tr- don't try to be like someone else because you're special. You're unique. And a lot of that, what I just said, is sort of true. Um, right. You know, you are special. You know, you are unique in one way of looking at it. And then another way of looking at it, maybe not so much. Yeah. The, the, I mean, one of the things that my brother, my brother's going to be a guest on this podcast, like imminently. Yeah. So you'll get to meet him. Um, but one of the things my brother talks about is, you know, a lot of how you do life breaks down to how you answer this question. What percent of me is special and unique to me? And huh. what percent of me is kind of just like everyone else? Yeah. And that's a question of human nature. You know, to what extent am I like a human just like everyone else? And so, you know, other people, how other people are doing humanness are good templates for how I should do humanness. Yeah. And, you know, to what extent am I like completely my own thing? So if I look at how other people are doing humanness, it's not really going to help me. Mm-hmm. And I think that the older I get and the more I learn how to do humanness, the more I feel like that nature side is really important, like more than 50%, mm-hmm. like maybe more than 75%, that the extent to which human beings are like each other and therefore can be models for each other moving forward is the way humans work. And really, you know, we're social critters. We're social critters and almost all the anthropology points to the fact that we learn by imitation. When you're saying that like this is how human beings work, it sounds to me like you're not saying some people imitate other people and other people are unique. It sounds like what you're saying is actually like sort of regardless of what the narratives are, just human beings imitate. So the person who's trying to be unique is imitating somebody. The person who's self-consciously imitating is imitating somebody, right? Like that's the dynamic. And I think that the choice you're left with is not, am I gonna be completely original or am I going to, you know, imitate people? I think the choice you're left with is, am I going to self-consciously choose the constellation of people that I want to imitate Or am I going to kind of casually happen upon the people who I imitate and end up being like? Is that going to be a self-conscious choice or not? And am I going to put myself in the position to be mentored or apprenticed to people worthy of imitating? Or am I just going to kind of drift through my life and end up bumping into people that I end up imitating and get this kind of random constellation of factors? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons that I feel unique to some people is they don't know the four people I imitated. Right. You know, they don't know Eric Bazell and Dave Seeley and Archie McKenney and John Dahl, right? Like you haven't met those people. So you don't know that my personality has huge components of each of those really admirable people that you know, I end up feeling like someone you haven't met before. Right. Do you think that this is a distinct conversation at all from the conversation we've had many times just about formation? Like you are, you tend to be formed by your community. When you said that about like, you just don't know who I've imitated. You know, I remember I had an experience with Katie when it was like when we were dating and we went to Cal Poly to visit one of my good friends. We went to high school together. He was going to Cal Poly and we got there and like, he sort of talked like me and used the same sort of cadence and joke pattern and all that stuff and it just sounded and remember katie seemed a little disappointed that like i wasn't unique in that you right. know and it wasn't a big thing it was she was just like oh yeah i just didn't know that you would sound so much alike you know and that like i don't know if i ever like imitated him or he imitated me intentionally but we were formed sort of by doing it together you know like all, our whole high school group you know and so do you feel like it's distinct it feels a little bit more intentional to imitate it is to- a little distinct because yeah. you know i know that uh 
during the preaching class, Michael said something like, you know, you know, I know that you basically become the average of the six people you hang out with. And so I want to make sure I'm hanging out with cool people. Yeah. Um, and I just think that's so wise. And uh, I, I love the way you put it. And I think that that's true. Like you, you automatically imitate the people that you're around. Mm-hmm. And so you want to embed yourself in a community that is kind of raising you up. But I think there's something else here. Paul isn't just saying, you know, embed yourself in a community that raises you up, which he says stuff like that all the time. And Nick is going to talk about that next week. He's talking about something more directional. Mm -hmm. He's talking about looking to a model, someone you want to be like. And so I think he's talking more about intentionally pursuing mentorship or Mm -hmm. apprenticeship in the Christian life or in anything you want to be good at. Right. right? Um, and so, you know, I've, I've sought out mentors in, in just about everything I've ever tried to do. Yeah. You know, the, like, right. The, the big project in my life right now is to become a quality soccer coach. And so I guarantee you, I have three really important mentors in that. Do they know I'm, you're there, you know, your mentors? They do. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. And, uh, and you, you couldn't, Feel the number of direct questions you get from me without knowing that you're my mentor. But I've I've called it out and I've right. thanked them for it. So that's interesting. Another question of distinction. Is this distinct from conversations about discipleship? Well, I think that discipleship is a really important word, yeah. right? Because you know, discipleship or like the whole image of the yoke, it comes from an apprenticeship culture. I mean, let's not forget when God chose to become a person. God became a person in a trade that's apprenticed, Yeah, right? Like Jesus was a vocational apprentice and part of a guild that apprenticed. And then when he kind of used that term of art for how we are just to help each other grow in the project of being human. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a very similar idea. You know, we're just kind of modernizing it a little bit by using the language of, of mentoring or, um, or apprenticing. Yeah. Or, or just imitation, you know, it's like, I think Scott Weeking wants to continue to push the conversation of discipleship into, okay, let's, let's sort of drop the baggage of the word. So it's like a really big word. And let's think about what does it mean to imitate Jesus? What does it mean to do this situation like Jesus would do it, you know? And it does make sense to me to think that even that can be a little bit hard. So let's look at someone who we feel like is doing it close to how Jesus might have done it. And then let's try to do it like that person, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And again, you know, The Imitation of Christ is one of my favorite books. And Imitating God, Imitating Jesus, those are kind of the central program. The idea, the Christian life is incarnational, right? Like this is the thing that makes Christianity so distinct is that God's program of not only saving, but helping humanity grow back into God's image wasn't just a book. Right. It it was the project of becoming a person that we could model after. Mm-hmm. Like imitation and modeling is at the heart of not only the Christian life, but the whole theological premise of Christianity. Yeah. But I just feel like imitating Jesus is pretty varsity. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that that that's like that's MBA level. And I'm still I'm still working on foul shots. Right. And so like yeah. you know, the, uh, the I guess what here a coaching example is I coach rec soccer. So sometimes I have like, you know, high end athletes who are who are like, you know, headed to great things. And then I'll have a kid who just her mom decided that she'd been in the house too much and needed to start a sport. Right. And so I need to like I have the whole skill spectrum. And so sometimes what I'll do is I'll just bring one of my daughters 
to be an assistant coach so that that new player could get one-on-one attention. And my daughter doesn't have to be a great coach to help that player move forward in huge ways. She just has to be like an accessible person that that player can imitate. And I feel like that's a little bit of what Paul, like in some cases, Paul says, hey, uh, Timothy has been imitating me. I'm sending him to you so you can imitate him. Yeah. And there's a sense in which, okay, um, yeah, we're all trying to be like Jesus, but uh, we, that in the meantime, let's find people who are farther along in particular aspects of imitating Jesus to kind of see how that plays out in our culture, in our time. Okay. So that idea is like so exciting to me because it seems so logical. Yeah. And so I want to sort of retrace a little bit because we've been sort of been like going example, example, example. And I think sort of at the core of what we're saying, like Paul in the New Testament is very clear that imitation is crucial, you know, it, and yeah. it just assumes it. And, you know, you've made the argument that that's actually psychologically advanced, you know, it's like, that's, this is how human beings work. This is how human beings learn. This is how human beings grow. And so a really reasonable response would be to find someone that you think is a little bit beyond you and you'd like to grow into being more like, and then just ask them to <laughs> help you get there, you know, follow them, imitate yeah. them. And that's where we get the mentoring thing. And I think as we say all those things out loud, I'm hoping that all of that's making sense, you know, and it almost feels like, okay, like that's just, we just know that, right? Everyone just knows that that's sort of good practice. But I kind of want to raise some objections to it that I feel yeah. like sort of arise out of maybe what we do th- often think about human nature and about like how to grow and about what's the right way to do things. And I feel like, is it not true that on some level you're telling people, Hey, you actually aren't enough. You know, mm-hmm. you are, you're telling me not to be satisfied with who God has made me to be. I need to be more like that person. I need to be more like that coach. I should be more like Stanford. Like Peter's not enough. Peter needs to be more like Stanford. And that's when I'll be enough is when I'm more like Stanford. Like, I do feel like the, maybe a reason we have this, like, you're special, you're unique, you should be satisfied with that is maybe because people have a tendency to get so down on themselves and we need to celebrate, you know, who we are. We need to celebrate the fact that one, we have gifts, but also we have limits. Like not everyone can be everyone. So you should sort of learn a little bit to be, to celebrate who you are. And so is this not a little bit telling people like, you're not enough, you need to figure out the person who is enough and be more like them? Yeah, you know, I have very mixed feelings about that because yeah. in some ways, you know, absolutely, you know, the you actually have been made with um, particular, I'm not necessarily gonna use the word unique, sure, but each person has particular knowledge, skills, abilities, temperament that suits them for certain things in ways that they aren't suited for other things in those ways. And yeah. you know, the truth is, is that I will never be either Richard Iverson or Ellen Iverson, right? Like neither of those people, um, those people are both beyond my ceiling, yeah. right? And so to get down on myself because I'm not those people or say, you know, you know, Jill Ellis or Bill Burr or someone like that, you know, the, these are, and, th- and this is one of the problems with celebrity culture yeah. is because we spend so much attention on the very, very best that we're just kind of constantly reminded that we're not that. Mm -hmm. And so there's something very profound about saying, this is how God has made me. This is the level of growth I'm at. And because of the gospel of grace, I don't have to actually be more to be loved or to be accepted by God or to be like completely embraced by my family and my community Mm -hmm. and and my church. But am I enough? Mm -hmm. Is there room for me to make progress and move forward? 
Always, right? And so the idea that I'm somehow enough and therefore can just stop and I don't want to look to anyone who's doing certain aspects of life better. I know fathers who are probably better fathers than I will ever be, Yeah. right? But is the appropriate response to that to be like, well, I'm set. My kids are just going to get this level of parenting and that's going to be enough for them, right? right? Or, or right. like, is that logical at all? Or, is that, or, or am I racing time to become the very best father I can be in the time I still have them in our, my house so they can get the very best parenting possible? Am I racing time to become the very best, you know, college quasi minister that I can be in the time that these students are in college so that I can provide them non-mediocre content? You know, like, Yes, the quest to progress is real. And that is what's kind of so unique about the gospel is it creates room for striving without the psychological penalty of not being enough. Right. And even in the fathering example, which I think you could take any arena and say you're like, oh, yeah, these five people are better, way better fathers than I am. And I get that like the impulse shouldn't be, okay, well, then I I, who cares? I shouldn't do anything. But I guess what I will say is like there's probably – someone of those five who just has a totally different temperament, totally different sort of style of life. Like you could try all you want and you probably won't be that because you, there's so much in you going in the other direction, you know? So maybe if there's one of those five who is similar in temperament and similar, maybe even in style, but maybe just better or more consistent on one level, it feels sort of limiting to say, well, I'm just going to go in, in my direction further but it feels sort of foolish. And I think that's what you're, you're getting at with like celebrity culture is like we have these examples of people who are the best at things and we are not the best at things. Yeah. And we need to be more like them, which we won't be. We won't be that right. probably, you know. It's interesting. I wonder how like things like Masterclass, the yeah. edu- online education, it seems like what they sell you is that you can become like Aaron Franklin and how he cooks Texas barbecue. Yeah, I actually don't. I've never signed up for a master class yeah. because generally great practitioners are not good teachers yeah. because they don't remember what it's like to suck. Yeah. You know, a great teacher remembers what it's like to be terrible. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that a good mentor is too. And so th- that's also part of the mentoring program is someone who understands what it was like. One of the things that my brother likes to say about finding a mentor is that you want to find a mentor that's two life stages ahead of you. Uh-huh. Because if you find a mentor that's just like one life stage ahead of you, well, they have all these theories about how life works, but haven't actually seen how they play out on the decadal scale. But if you choose a mentor that's like four life stages ahead of you, they don't remember what it's like to have your problems and feel like they're actually problems. Uh-huh. They could just like pat you in the head and say, oh, sweetie, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wait till you face such and such and such and such. And so like you want someone who's had enough experience to kind of know how your crazy theories are going to play out, mm-hmm. but is still proximal enough to you to remember that that was hard. Right. And I think that that plays out in a lot of ways. But I think the other thing is, you know, when I said who were who was the big influence in my life? I didn't name one person. I named four people. Right? Yeah. Dave Seeley, John Dahl, Eric Bazell, and Archie McKinney. And I, I didn't I'm not just like any one of them. Yeah. They all have different you know capacities and passions and personalities than me. But there were aspects of each one of them that was transferable. Mm-hmm. And so there is a sense in which, you know, choosing who you're going to 
you know, apprentice to choosing who you're going to imitate there, you do want to find a temperament match, a gifting match, a skill match, or at least in the realm in which you're going to try to download value from them. Yeah. Cause I remember in high school and early college, I had a sort of friend mentor, you know, he was a couple years older than me. And, and I think it was so good for me to want to be more like him. You know, like that was a very good impulse. But then it felt like the further I, I went, I start to see a little bit more of the differences between us, sort of just in temperament and in style and just like the way we engage and like both good, I think. You know what I mean? It's just like just different, you know? And I, and so it started to feel less natural to be like him. I remember having a very sort of profound moment of clarity. And I'm curious to know how this moment of clarity fits into this conversation. But I remember thinking God didn't want to Garrett Perkins. You know, God wanted, he made a Garrett Perkins and he made a Peter Nittler. He didn't need me to be a Garrett Perkins. He needed me to be a Peter Nittler, but maybe it's like Garrett Perkins can help me become Peter Nittler, you know? Um, That's right. Fully. And I think, I think that that's, that's where originality really comes from because I do think originality is a thing. Um, But I think that the way originality works is that you you have these multiple realms of imitation at the confluence of these multiple people that you're intentionally imitating, you end up knitting that with your own personal skills, abilities, temperament into a new context. Mm -hmm. And that confluence becomes a brand new story, something completely original, something deeply creative, Mm. but with the tools. You can't create without the tools. And so imitation generates the tools, knits them into your unique gifts and personality, and then launches them into a new context, which creates new things. Well, you know, what's really interesting is that there's times when Paul doesn't just say, like, imitate me. He says, imitate us. You know, there's a a plurality. It's It's often plural. That's right. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if that— About half the times it's plural. Yeah. Um, And so there is this sense in which Paul recognizes that maybe he's a little idiosyncratic. Yeah. Right? And also, like— a dude, right? Like, and so you 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 probably want to imitate a more diverse swath of people who are spiritually mature in the church. Yeah, I feel like that helps me smooth out some of the objections because it's like I do think right. I do think the impulse to try to just become someone else feels dangerous to me, you know. Yes. And like I said, it's like me trying to just be Garrett Perkins. I feel like I would have to sort of I would have to stop being me. Right. To do that. But there's parts of Garrett Perkins that help me be a better me, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I wonder too, you know, I'm feeling very nostalgic for, um, for mentors right now with Dan leaving and, right. and going off to Hillside. And I wonder if the fact that I have had you two in my life for these last decade, sort of consistently side by side, having conversation with Dan, having conversation with you, having conversation with Dan, with you. It's like, you've both been sort of mentoring me and I've been imitating both of you, but because I wasn't always trying to just be one of you, I was, I was, I was sort of in the confluence. I was in the middle of the Venn diagram of you two. I was like free to sort of become some of Dan, some of you, some of me, some of Garrett, something new, something that hadn't existed before. And I wonder too, if that's why it never got to the point where maybe it did with Garrett when he was maybe a single person I was imitating where it felt like, oh, I, I've reached my limit. Not of what he can offer me, but it's like, I just know that we're, we're different. Like we can't totally be the same person. And maybe the fact that there was two of you, Dan and Stanford, like it never got stale. I do think, you know, because I've, I've watched this over the last 10 years. And mm-hmm. I do think there are, you know, there, there are ways in which Dan and I are the same. 
and that's easy to just take on. There are ways in which Dan and I are different, uh-huh. and I have watched you kind of take on different aspects of those. But then, like in the last five years, what I've seen is you not just like taking those things, but transforming them and knitting them together and adding like seminary. Uh-huh. And, you know, who's the most important person you imitate in your life? Well, it's your it's your spouse, it's, uh-huh. you know, Amanda for me, Katie for you. You know, the, the profound spiritual influence Katie and Mason are having on your life and like becoming unrecognizable from either of us as like a really thriving, unique individual. Yeah. Um, and I like I do think that there's something profound about I think that's what Paul had in mind. I think that's what he's talking about is like the path to originality is apprenticing until you are creating something new. Yeah, it's funny. I, I remember when people would when I was first starting to like speak at college life and stuff and people would say, you sound so much like Dan. You know, yeah. and I think like listening back, it's like I totally did, and I think I still do. I think there's a lot of like I I can still hear Dan when I speak, but less so, you know, much less. But it's funny, I never saw that as a uh, a detriment, you know. Right. I never, I ne- right. I thought that was a compliment. You know, it's like because Dan sounds great. I love sounding like Dan. You know, or I know there's been a few times. This is much rarer, but there's been a few times when someone who's talked to you about something also talked to me and will highlight those a similar way that we it's like oh you're like it's sort of feels like i'm talking to stanford you know and that's a it is a rarer case but it's like that's a huge compliment to me because that's who I, that's i benefit from that i sort of want to be that way and so it feels like imitation in process but then i do feel like over the years i sound less like dan and maybe even i have my own style in conversation that's you know right. what i mean so it's like i do feel like i am more of an original you know, or more particular, which is funny. I feel like what we've done is actually we've given people, it's like pretty clever rhetorical thing that has happened in this conversation. I think so. If we've just arrived that like, if you want to be unique and you want to be original, actually the way to do that is to imitate like four people, you know, like, and then in the confluence of those things, you will become something sort of new and something distinct. In the confluence of those four things in whatever context you end up in, because you're going to end up in a different context of those influences. And that becomes something brand new. And so I do think, like, I think that the image of God, if you look at Genesis 1, and it says we were created in the image of God, well, you know, um, Dorothy Sayers has a great essay on that. And she says, well, by the time we are called the image of God, what's the only thing we know about God? Well, that God creates, that God is creative. And so what is the image of God? It's creativity. It's yeah. it's originality. Yeah. Like, so like, I actually want to like creativity is, I think the experience of the image of God, like, I don't, I don't want to be heard as denigrating that at all. But I think that, you know, we don't create ex nihilo. That's not, that's not what humans do. Humans um, apprentice in skills and develop the skills in order to create. Mm-hmm. And creation often happens at the confluence of unexpected skills. Like I was just on a call the other day where Zach Morris is working for me and he developed a tool and I was the kind of debriefing how the meeting went. And the, the way this project went is there was a problem in sediment transport and there was a solution in statistics. So I brought a sediment transport person and a statistics person together and we came up with something new. Was it completely mm-hmm. new? No. 
it was the, just the confluence of two skill sets, but it solved a problem. And that, you know, creation often happens in the confluence of two skills. And that's the way I think about that. this as well, is that like the parts of me that are unique are the things that are the emerging properties of the multiple imitations I've had in my life. You know what's funny is that uh, – so Mike Loretto is – we're doing a lot of name dropping on this podcast. We are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Mike Loretto is our editor, and after he had listened to a few episodes, he messaged me and – well, I should say painstakingly listened yeah, right, to a few right. episodes editing it. Yeah, it takes yeah he listens time. to uh, us a lot. But <laughs> So he said, hey, just – I'm curious, um, do you ever listen to the Bill right. Simmons podcast? And I was like – well, first of all, yes, yeah, I do. Right. You know, like yeah. like my my influences in how I do this are Bill Simmons. So, which would make you, by the way, my Joe House, <laughs> and um, <laughs> which is a joke that cousin Sal, three people are gonna yeah, know, right. <laughs> cousin Sal. Um, so, our Simmons, Bill Simmons, and then the Bible Project That's guys, right. in particular, John Collins, because I don't feel like I'm Tim Mackey, and so it's like I'm. <laughs> I want to figure out how to. I want to figure out how to ask people questions. I want to figure out how to recap a conversation. Yeah. I want to, that's what I want to do. I feel like it's so effective and, and I want to be able to do that. And so this podcast is sort of a combination of those few things, like the sort of the fun bantery side of Simmons and then the trying to sort of be a recapper and try to bring some clarity along the way in the way that John Collins at the Bible Project does, you know? And so it's funny because he said that and on some level, I, w I wonder if some people would be embarrassed that you yeah. can, it was so transparent right. that Simmons was an influence on me. But I'm like, oh no, that's I, I didn't feel that at all. I'm like, that sounds awesome. If you right. can see any sort of similarity between the two of us, that's great. And also I know that, well, I think maybe in the confluence of those things, there is a, a uniqueness to the voice and content that's too. Right. Who knows? So anyway, yeah, I think that's interesting that like clearly I have been imitating Bill Simmons. And it's funny to be able – that someone could see it and pick it out. And I feel like artists are if, – if you talk to, like, filmmakers about who who has influenced them, they're very self-aware of their influences. Like, true yeah. artists are really self-aware of their influences. The whole homage, you know, it's a, it's a fancy way of yeah. saying, yeah, this person influenced me and I'm tipping my hat um, because I would right. – like, you know, a movie isn't like a journal paper. You can't – cite someone and say, this person has influenced me here, see their paper, right? And so what you do yeah. is you create an image that calls to mind their film because you feel like you can't be honest about your art without saying, you know, this person has influenced me. An uh -huh. homage is kind of like an artistic citation. But I, I think that we should take a hint there that if the greatest artists that are making art right now are recognizing their influences and that they are in fact imitating that like in any project we take on, but even especially like the most important projects we take on our, our spiritual development, our relationships, both in the church and our, our long-term romantic relationships with our spouses or significant others, looking to other people who seem to be doing that well and asking yourself, why are they doing that well? And then taking the next step and asking them how they're doing that well. That's how the job gets done. Yeah. It doesn't get done by watching a lot of TED Talks, even reading books. Mm -hmm. So I had an experience several years ago. I was feeling a little bit down. It was the beginning of the explosion of um, social media. And there's just kind of so many voices um, I thought, yeah. you know, I just having an existential moment where I was like, you know, how is the church going to survive this kind of like onslaught of voices? And any sentence that starts with how is the church going to survive is like theologically naive, right? Like it's just not, uh -huh. but like I was just having that moment. Um, and uh, I remember the next day in church, 
one of the youth group small groups got up to light the advent candle and it was like eight awkward teenage girls and two college students standing behind them and you could just kind of sense the affection that was going both ways and i was like oh this is how we win this huh. is what we have we have embodied loving mentorship the ability to imitate trajectory and goodness and kindness and justice is just so much more important than a million twitter voices that's interesting i got goosebumps got the goose got the goosies that's so that's so cool right I, I, I love that it's the same impulse as follow me as i follow christ and then like follow timothy as he follows me you know it's like it's this chain you know that that tethers us to the one that we're all trying to follow, you know? And I would be remiss to not continue the name dropping is my daughter just joined the youth ministry and her youth leader is Corey Halfley. And I- That's a win. I, right, <laughs> like um, if, yeah. if I could have paid thousands of dollars for that to happen, I would have, right? Like yeah. that, like, yeah. because, because Corey Halfley is someone I want my daughter to imitate. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. Of course, of course. Yes, yes, yeah. And Gamet is also part of that great team. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, I hope that we've painted a pretty attractive picture of the importance of this biblical theme, like that Paul is, is beating this drum and we want to pick it up, you know, we want to pick up the rhythm with him. And I've heard a lot of people sort of lament that they don't have mentors yeah. and, and wanting them. And actually another name job, but one of the speakers and just leaders that I really admire, his name is Jer Swigert, and he's leading something called the Global Immersion Project. And I remember him giving a talk and he was saying that he's probably had eight mentors in his life and he's had to ask six of them. That's right. That's right. And so I'm curious to know, like, for the people who are like, yeah, this sounds great. How do you do it? Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I actually feel like finding a mentor is a skill. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of young people and I've been that young person who's just like, yeah, but like no one's taking an interest in me. How can I get someone to take an interest in me? And it turns out that there are specific things you need to do. And the first thing you need to do is initiate and initiate relentlessly mm -hmm. because most of the people that you want to be like, other people want their time. That's just the yeah. way that works, right? Like if yeah. someone is someone that you want to be like, then other people want things from them as well. And so their time is fully committed. Their time is overcommitted. And so they're not going to pursue you. I generally am mentoring one or two people at a time. And sometimes I will like reach out and initiate that relationship. But even then, even if I initiate the relationship, my weekly schedule is such that like, unless that person says, hey, can we do lunch next week? When can I get on your calendar? And does that like every month, it'll kind of fall away. And you know, th that's just the nature of being in these life stages. And so if you want a mentor, you need to ask someone, you need to be comfortable with them saying no and pivoting to find someone else. And then you need to be a little bit relentless. The person who stands to gain is the person who really needs to be putting the energy in. Because I think that there's this sense of, well, if they're a like spiritual person and they agree to mentor me, then they're gonna do the work. No, you need to do the work. In fact, you need to do yeah. more work. And you know, this is another thing my brother talks about. Little teasers for Nick. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of dropping some teasers for Nick coming on next yeah. week. Another thing that he says is that if you're gonna ask for time for someone that is impressive enough that you wanna be like them, 
kind of need to find ways to make time for them. And so you need to maybe find chances to spend time with them where they can multitask you. Like if they're doing a big yard project, offer to do it with them. If they are, you know, have to move something heavy, be their on-call person so that you can spend that 40 minutes with them. Or even to the point of, you know, most people like this have young children and babysitters are really expensive. And you you may say, hey, could I babysit for you a few times to kind of offset some of the time you're, you're spending with me? Those are the, those are the sorts of things that invite the particular people that you want to spend time with you to do so. And it's just kind of a reality of the situation. I do remember Katie and I providing some free babysitting for the, for the Gibson clan <laughs> <That's> um, <right. laughs> in our college and just after college days. That happened. So I'm glad, glad we could help. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, and, to be, and to be completely honest, our marriage really needed it at that point. And so in order yeah. for us to be someone that you wanted to imitate, that was something that helped us be that. Yeah. But then I think that once you once you do get a mentor, like that first kind of set of nuts and bolts skills is how to get time. Then I think the thing that you're particularly good at is what to do with the time. When you get time with someone yeah. um, that you want to be like, knowing what to do with that time to get the most out of it, that's kind of the next set of skills. So Peter, what would you say about that? Okay, so the thing I would say is super simple is like come with stuff right. that you want to talk about. Like come with a question. Come with a question. Come with like a dilemma that you're in. Come with it's just something you're interested in. Even if it's just like here's what I'm really excited about. Right. It just, so it doesn't have to be a dilemma or question necessarily. It could just be just come with your life. Like you need to bring your life to the table here because the person you're sitting across from, you want them to speak contextually into your life, not just like give you their wisdom on general things. Right. You want their specific wisdom. Right. And I feel like I tell this to our leaders, the members of the 12. Maddie and I meet with them in the little pod. So I meet with like two or three of them at a time. And at the beginning of the year, I give a big pitch like this time will be what you want yeah. it to be, like what, how you make it, you know? I want to talk about what's going on with you and what's happening in your life, what questions you're having, what it's exciting about you. Like, I don't, you shouldn't be expecting me to bring content to right. these. We're not going to necessarily read a book together. Mm -hmm. You know, if we, if we sort of decide that's what we want to do, maybe we will, but that's not, I'm not leading these in this way. Like your lives are leading these and hopefully I have some wisdom or something we can process through it, you know? So that's what I would say is like, bring something to the table. And I think that's right. I think a mentor kind of knows when they're being helpful and they also kind of know when they're not. And I think that they, you know, someone like that doesn't want to waste their time or yours. And so the mm -hmm. best way for them to be helpful is for you to come with questions and pretty specific questions. I think that that's the best way to be engaging is to really like seek out particular wisdom um, on particular issues, because otherwise, you know, it's going to be hard for them to just offer you value. This is really fun to do. I feel like what we did, we started with this idea of a pattern we see in the scriptures, like a pattern where you cannot look away from the fact that Paul is just saying imitate, 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 imitate. We sort of looked at how that could sort of rub us the wrong way yeah. and diagnose. Actually, that might be closer to reality right. than what we think of as the reality to get to you know, originality or our potential. And then gave a little bit of a there's how you do it, you know, find some mentors and and grow in that direction for a while. I do think it was helpful for me along the way to be like, you're, you're not becoming this person, right. but you're you're inculcating part of them into you so that you grow That's into right. into that person that, you know, you've been told as a little child that you are the this, this special little one that you are, you know, so that you can be the best version of yourself. 
which should not surprise us. Right. You know, it's like if everything in this life is done in community, then it feels like character change, character transformation, skill gathering is also done in community. Yeah. You're not going to be a free agent right. in this, right. you know? So I, this is great. I love it. Thanks for bringing that to us. So let's quarantine corner, man. Let's talk about what we're doing in quarantine. Um, I feel really embarrassed that mine tend to be so much about like what I'm watching. But I, again, I will say this. I'm doing this every week, man. You know, I'm coming up with someone every are, week yeah. to talk yeah. about. And and again, my life is like I work <laughs> with college students and then I go home and I play with cars and I read car books and we watch cars and it's a lot of really fun times. But it's like I don't think many people are busting out their Hot Wheels. Right, right. <laughs> During quarantine, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so I'm just, it'd be delightful to tell those stories. But what I want to tell you about is Katie and my new obsession in terms of what we're watching on the TV screen, which is The West Wing. Uh, and this is one of those shows that people told me for years, like you're gonna love it. It's just right up your alley. It's just it's 100 dialogue. Mm-hmm. There's just like no, there's not a chase scene in sight. There's not there's nothing. You know, it, there's no there's action. Some, there's it's, some it's really actually, long takes. Yeah, but it's yeah. of people yeah. talking while they're walking down the hall. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, the right. walking down the hall is unbelievable. Yeah. I I marvel at like what would that be like to memorize those lines and have to like navigate, yeah. grab that piece of paper. But so it's an Aaron Sorkin show. Sork- so Sorkin's scripts are like fifty percent longer than anyone else's for the same amount That's of time right. because they have so many words in them. Yeah, people have to talk fast. Yeah. They just have to talk faster and faster and faster. And I just love it. You know, it's like you think about this show, it's like everything's happening in these offices. And the, like, obviously, the whole country is happening outside of it. And you just never really see any of yeah, the country. Right. You never see the policies working out. You never see these things. It's just all of them talking about it, which sounds so dull. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 gripping. It's it's rippling. And so we're just like, we get so excited when we can watch one. So anyway, I can't recommend it highly enough. I was always thought it was like, this is going to be dated. You know, this is going to be, you know. It's gonna it's gonna have the black bars on the side. It's gonna I'm gonna not even be a widescreen show, but it's not. It's great, and um, this will come out after Valentine's Day. But I we love it so much that for one of Katie's Valentine's presents is a a Bartlett for President. Oh, nice. Nice. sweatshirt i think it's fantastic we'll jury's out we'll see if we'll see if she likes it but i love the west wing you need hbo right now to get it which is funny we've we we got hbo to continue watching it we were mooching off of a friend uh-huh. for a while and the account just for some reason stopped and i thought you know what we're adults yeah okay it's time so we we were paying 15 dollars to watch the west wing wow so I love the West Wing. So I'm always very hesitant to share my opinion on the West Wing because it's, you know, adjacent to politics. But like, I feel like the politics seems Pollyanna enough and naive enough at this point that it's just like a yeah. very well-written show. I've watched it twice. You have? Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> yes. Uh, we, uh, also, I am a little bit surprised that some of the like social policy questions are a lot of the same ones now. Yeah. And it was yeah. like 20 years ago, you know? Right. Anyway, we don't have to talk about that, but that was very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, what about you? What I'm about gonna, you? You're not watching the West Wing. You've already watched it. I'm going to, yeah, that was back when we watched stuff. The uh, I'm going to zag back to music. Okay. So uh, my last musical recommendation was a very kind of off-brand um, Taylor Swift, but maybe on-brand because Bon Iver. That song was awesome. Yeah, so good. So good. <laughs> but here's what I'm going to say. Exile. Brilliant but not the best song of 2020. The best song of 2020 is 
Sunlight by Radical Face. And so, so this is so. Let me. I, if if you don't if you don't listen to Radical Face, they're 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 just they're a very dark storytelling band, and um, they tell stories of broken families, and they make me cry on airplanes. And uh, I, I don't know, if, I don't know that's. But this is this this song is called Sunlight. Like it's got some darkness to it, but it's just it's a very light song. And basically, what Ben Cooper's been doing is he's been just sitting down in his living room during quarantine and writing songs like quickly and then putting them to his own art. And so if you you want to you want to go to YouTube to experience sunlight because he paints a portrait of someone who matters to him while the music plays. And you know his his song his, their music is all about broken families trying to find redemption. And so th there's this very cool family connection in it and it is just the most just the most beautiful song of 2020. Man, I see it. I thought for a second that it wasn't even on Spotify, that you were so underground, but it is. <laughs> All right. That's great, man. I'm going to listen to it. You gave a good recommendation last time. Appreciate it. All right, Stanford. That's it for us. All right. We will uh, we'll be back with uh, with my brother. That's right. Mick Gibson next week. All right. That's awesome. That, that'll, be, that'll be spicy. <laughs> yeah, that'll be spicy. All right. See bye. ya. All right. That's it for this week's episode. I hope that this week in college life was a blessing to you the prayer night on Tuesday night and this episode. I hope that the idea of imitation feels a little less scary and a little less foreign, and I hope and pray that you will find someone or some ones to imitate. And I want to say thank you to Stanford, not only for this conversation, but for being someone to imitate. It's just true that I wouldn't be the same person without getting to imitate you. And thank you really to all the people who have helped shape us, those said and those unsaid. And of course, thank you, Josh Paskey and Scooter King Kyle Jung for the music of your pod and your staff. I love it every time. And thank you to Mike Loretto for editing our show. Very few know the magic that you work, my friend. But before we go, College Life, you should know that we love you more than the massive impact that Dan Seitz has had on this ministry in ways both seen and unseen. Good luck, Dan. You leave behind a magnificent legacy here. We'll see you all next week.